I was gone last week, and I'm sure if you were here, you knew that. If you weren't, you didn't know, and I just confessed. Um, my grandfather turned 80 this week, and um, was thinking about his life as I was thinking about this morning. But I was thinking about how, how for many of you, we're encouraging you to go to, um, if you're in any kind of relationship, uh, to come to Fight Night November 1st. Um, we don't really want to encourage fighting in relationships, although we know it's an actual part of all of our relationships, if we're honest. Um, but we do encourage you to find ways to grow together. And so I, I, um, I was thinking about my grandfather because I, I don't think he had the best marriage for much of my life. Um, he listens to this every week, so Grandpa, I'm sorry I'm saying this out loud. Um, but it's true, but I watched someone fight for it even when it was hard. And I can tell you, as we gathered multiple generations last week, I think four generations were there, uh, I can tell you that when you do that, it makes it worth it. Um, and so my family is living proof of that. Um, so I, I, growing up, I kind of liked Legends, and maybe you liked Legends as well. I went to Terrytown Elementary School on Boston Avenue. Now that means nothing to you, but here's why that's so, there are legends surrounding that. So Boston Avenue, it was named Boston Avenue, I don't know if this is why or not, but there was Celtic Way in Terre Haute where I grew up, because Larry Bird played basketball at Indiana State, and so Boston Avenue, we all talked about, was it the legend, his road, right? I mean, um, so Larry Bird's kind of a legend. Um, but also, maybe you're more familiar with the story of Terrytown. Uh, it's, ours is spelled different, it was T-E-R-R-E, new word, town, um, and maybe you've heard of this Terrytown, the one that's all one word, that's T-A-R-R-Y, from the story of Ichabod Crane, right? The legend of Sleepy Hollow. Maybe you've heard that story. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you're like me and you like, see, I always like that story because I went to Terrytown Elementary. So why would I not like a story that took place in Terrytown? <laughs> Go figure. Um, but I like this story. It's, it's a legend, right? It's, it takes place in New York and it's the story of Ichabod Crane and he, he's infatuated with Katrina Von Tassel, and, and there's the town kind of brute, Abraham Von Brunt, and so there's this story, right? This legend takes place in Sleepy Hollow, a story by Washington Irving, written in 1820. And the story, Ichabod's this teacher in town, and he wants his social standing to rise, and so he, he finds himself trying to woo this woman. It doesn't go so well, and he ends up heading back, but it's a spooky night, and there was the, the headless horseman, this Hessian soldier. The story goes, and no one really is sure how it really ended, but all they know is there was a trampled pumpkin, and Ichabod was never seen again. Right? Great story, if you like stories. Um, and if you don't want to tell your kids, you want them to sleep tonight, right? Um, I was thinking about this last week, because last weekend we were, we were on a hayride last Saturday night, and and all of us. And so we're on this hayride. There's like 40 of us. I don't know how many there were. And, and, and my son is sitting in the middle of my uncle and I. And so Isaac says, he says, how come there's no like spooky stuff? Like he loves Halloween. How come there's no lights or spooky stuff? And, and my uncle goes, well, you know, like, because there's like three weddings. So they would not have loved spooky stuff during their weddings at this state park. And, and he said, well, you know, I just don't think they have any. Maybe we haven't got to it yet. And Isaac's kind of bummed out. And my uncle goes, well, maybe they'll be the headless horseman. And I just goes, ooh, that would be good, right? Like he's all excited, <laughs> as only little boys can do, right? And, and so then, this, then we're sitting there, and, and uh, I said, Isaac, but you don't have to worry because you're shorter than your uncle and Uncle Scott and me, and so your head would be fine. Um, and he goes, that's true. You know, so we had this conversation. 
but also he gave me that eye roll that only sons can give fathers, right? You know the one, if you have a son, you understand what I'm saying. Or maybe you've given it, to, or I think daughters do it as well, because my daughter does it every day to me. Um, but even today, Sleepy Hollow, New York, is considered one of the most haunted places in the world. Spooky. Right? It's not real. Like, this story is not real. Like, this is what my kids tell me when, they, when I go, Dad, it's not scary. It's not real. It's not a real story. But I can imagine if you and I, on Halloween night, were in Sleepy Hollow, New York, we had just heard this story, we saw some of the old buildings, I can imagine we might hurry from building to building inside. I can imagine we would not want to sneak outside, right? I can imagine we know the story is not true, but there's something in all of us that would go, hmm, I know it's not true, but, right? We'd be just a little bit afraid. I mean, the leaves are rustling, the wind is blowing, it's kind of cool, you hear smell of embers of fires. I mean, it's the kind of scene where you would not want to be outside for very long. We know it's a story, just a story. But we know that stories and legends over time, they get embellished, they get added to, they get changed, they get manipulated, and all of a sudden we're not sure where the truth of the story is and where the legend began. I want to say today, I don't believe this is true of the story of Jesus. I don't believe it's legend, but we'll talk about others who do believe it's legend. In fact, I don't think the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is, is legend. It's its own story all its own. So we've been exploring this problem of God. We've been borrowing from Mark Clark and C.S. Lewis and Timothy Keller and others as we kind of look through this idea of what are the things that keep us from believing in God? What are the things that keep us from looking back? And so if you want to go back and listen to the series, we, we've kind of done this. We've looked at the problem of faith and science, that they're really probably not competing, but they're two sides of the same coin, both seeking truth. We looked at the idea that, that well, does God even exist? Because if God doesn't exist, then all of this is a waste of our time. So we talked about that. We, we talked a little bit about like, this idea that, is the Bible true? Is it trustworthy? Is it reliable? Can we, can we trust it? And last week, you talked about hypocrisy and how it, it really is a problem in the church. Um, and so the, the more we embrace the truth of that to others, the probably healthier we'll all be in the long run. But today, we'll explore the story of Jesus as a mythological story connected to the ancient deities, heroes of previous civilizations, or whether it's possible that the story of Jesus is a unique story that tells of a different God that desires to connect with humanity in a way that changes everything. Okay, it is on the See, I, I never can see this, so like I, I want to make sure I get the words right so you aren't confused, because so, I'm always confused. But, but if you're not, then we're on the same page. But, so there are a few ideas that have existed, and they really not, they're actually pretty new, this idea that the Jesus story is just a myth, that Jesus himself was a mythological figure, much like ancient deities. And if that's true, what were those stories and where did the connection come in? So about a couple hundred years ago, these two French writers came up with this idea that Jesus was just a mythological figure. And if that was true, what are the implications of that story? And so they began to summarize, I'll summarize the argument as this, that Jesus it's kind of the combination of ancient mythological people concocted by the church to give authority to themselves. That's the quick answer. But we see it in popular culture as well. Bill Mayer's Rid- Religious movie, 
Zeitgeist, the movie as well, there are other kinds of writings you'll find. It's probably gained more traction this generation than it really ever has before. But I want to recognize this, that there are no historical scholars anywhere who are worth anything that deny Jesus ever existed. In fact, there are over 10 first century scholars, historians, who record Jesus of Nazareth who are not a part of the church and are not recording in the New Testament. But I'm going to summarize what is this Christ myth in its entirety. Um, Acharya also known as D.M. Murdoch, summarized it this way in her book, The Christ Conspiracy. Jesus Christ is a mythical character based on various ubiquitous God, men, and universal saviors who were part of the ancient world for thousands of years prior to the Christian area. If that was true, the biggest thing I would probably struggle to understand is this, that how in the middle of persecution, this new way of living and an understanding of God grew from 12 followers to 33 million followers in 350 years and really turned the Roman Empire upside down. How did from 12 people, if it was sheer myth, go from 12 to 33 million in 350 years? and literally toppled what is arguably the greatest empire that has ever existed. I mean, the followers of Jesus lost everything. Often when you became a follower of Jesus, you were signing yourself up for death, but they did it anyway. But if this was a myth, why would they continue to follow him? Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, 19. He says this, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins, then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're all, of all people most to be pitied. Right. So in other words, if Jesus isn't real, if there really is no life after death, if this is really just a bunch of hogwash and really is legend or myth, then we are the most pitied people in the world and should be the most pitied people in the world. I agree with Paul. I agree with Paul. If Jesus is sheer myth and sheer legend, if this is all not true, then we really should be pitied because I should be pursuing something else. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We should be pursuing more monetary gain. We should be pursuing everything that makes me feel good. But in reality, we begin to recognize Jesus calls us to a life of other, a life of service, a life of sacrifice, a life of love for others beyond ourselves. And if he's a myth, then that's a waste of my time. But what are these myths that exist? And I guess I, I, if I'm talking about myths outside of Christianity, I should probably address a few inside Christianity first. I think they're kind of important. Like one, um, Jesus wasn't born December 25th. Sorry to burst your bubble if you think he was. Um, Pope Julius I decided December 25th was a good day because it was the day they celebrated pagan god Saturn. And so let's just throw out the pagan god and throw Jesus in, and so that's what they did. And so on the calendar, they decided December 25th was a good day to celebrate the birth of Jesus. He was probably born in September or October. So there you go. So it might be his birthday today. Uh, I told my kids this, and they go, I wish it was his birthday every day. I think they were thinking about Christmas presents. Um, And I said, well, Isaac, it could be his birthday today. He goes, can we celebrate it? Um, No. Um, Well, you can, but you're not getting any gifts. So yes, we can. So there's that one. There's the reality of Jesus was probably born in an actual cave, not a wooden manger. We like, the mangers look nice in our nativity sets. I mean, I get that. They look great. Um, except if you ever go to the Middle East, there's not a lot of wooden mangers, right? That's just not how they lived. Wood was really, really expensive. Jesus probably wouldn't have been hanging out in some wooden manger. Uh, it was probably a cave. So we, 
I know they look good nativity sets, but speaking of nativity sets, one of the other myths is that there were three wise men, right? You've all heard this story, three wise men. What we know is there were three gifts. We have no idea how many wise men came. No, none, zero. We just know there were three gifts. There could have been 20, there could have been one. Well, it could have been two, because we know they were plural. But when we say there are three wise men, no wonder people go, you guys don't even know what you're talking about, because you don't. Um, but even with that, we, we recognize, they always say, well, Jesus, was, they were there when he was born, because all of our manger scenes, right, if I had a manger scene, I would show you the picture, right, the wise men are there. They weren't there yet. They either would have, the, like, the world's fastest camels, or, like, a jet would have been more appropriate to go from wherever they came from to get to his birth scene. In reality, they were there sometime when he was a toddler, and that's, in fact, what the Greek word there talks about in Matthew chapter 2, is this Jesus was a toddler when these wise men came to see him. And so you say, well, why, why do we mention all those things that are kind of mythological things that develop within Christianity? Why? Because you can't discredit any other myths if you don't acknowledge the ones you already believe yourself. Right? It doesn't mean, those aren't bad things. In fact, they don't really hurt our belief in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I like celebrating Christmas on December 25th because I don't know when else I'd celebrate the birth of Jesus. I don't like that it's always cold, but I mean, like, you know, I guess that helps with a white Christmas, but otherwise, there, none of these things hurt anything. But if we're going to acknowledge the uniqueness of Jesus, we need to acknowledge the way that the followers of Jesus sometimes misunderstand the story they believe. That is important for us. See, as a kid, I was fascinated with Egyptian culture. Maybe you were as well. I mean, how can you not be? We made paper mache stuff in art class. Um, Little, like, things you tore the head off. I don't remember what they're called, but anyway. Um, we made those things, and you put stuff in it, and they use those when they bury pharaohs. Right? I mean, pharaoh and Egypt and the pyramids and the sphinx. I mean, it's pretty cool stuff, actually. I still want to know how it all happened. But yet, in the middle of all that, there were other myths that existed in Egyptian culture. I think I just like the idea of mummies, if we're honest. There's an Egyptian hero, Horus. Horus was this kind of bird man. He was the god of the sky and of the kings. And, in, and Horus is sometimes compared to Jesus. Now, if you go look at their stories, you realize pretty quickly there's not that much in common with the two of them. I mean, there's really not this anything that connects them, this son of Isis and Osiris. There's not really any kind of connection in their lives, but, but that was sometimes that people have tried to argue Actually, Gerald Massey and Acharya have tried to argue that, that this idea that Jesus is just kind of a Horus, he's a connection to him in some ways. Um, but if you go look at the stories of the two, there's really nothing that connects the two of them. In fact, what you find is Egyptologists, they, they hate this as well because it almost discredits the myth of their own hero. I could go through and show you point after point of this, but there's one way that that just doesn't seem to work. There's another mythological figure, Mithras, in which he was the god of the ancient Romans and really of the military. In the first four centuries, Rome, he was worshipped. And you'll find if you look at their practices, they look a lot like some of ours. They, they practice baptism. They eat like a kind of a communion kind of meal together. I mean, they, they dedicated stuff. It was kind of similar, but what you'll find is none of the writings that define Mithras, or his legend, they were all written 200 years after the gospel stories. So the reality isn't that 
Mithras was this mythological figure that Christianity used, but the, probably the other way around, that those who followed Mithras, they used the person of Jesus as part of their understanding. Another, another deity of antiquity was Dionysus. And if you know the story of Dionysus, they, that some of these scholars that argue for the myth of Jesus will argue that Dionysus really was as a precursor to Jesus, and, and he was born of a virgin as well. But if you know the story of Dionysus, he wasn't really born of a virgin. Um, it was that uh, Zeus threw a lightning bolt and impregnated his mother. Uh, it's not quite the same thing as a virgin birth. And then, and then his mother, Samel, got tricked, and she was killed by the Titans, and then um, Dionysus was eaten by the Titans, but his heart didn't get eaten, and so Zeus came back, killed the Titans, and brought Dionysus back to life by joining his heart and Dionysus' heart. And so I don't see the connection there, but, but some have argued that there's a connection that exists between that and the story of Jesus. Or maybe the Krishna, the Indian god, is the story that would seem to be a connection. It's one that people try to say, well, he also was born of a virgin, and except he had seven siblings before Krishna was born. And in fact, Krishna's mom wasn't born of a virgin, but impregnated by a white elephant. Um, Significantly different stories, not much connection. See, all this to say that when we try to make these attempts to connect ancient stories to Jesus, they don't really hold a lot of water. But often we can find parallels in various stories. In fact, one of the things we will talk about in a few weeks is the connection between various religions and Christianity. We'll talk about how some aspects of those religions point towards Jesus. I do think it's important that we recognize that there are some things that do look similar. It's okay to recognize similarities. Doesn't mean anything's wrong with that. See, Christianity does not claim to be the first religion to claim the concept of God's becoming human, dying, and being resurrected in a general sense. However, the uniqueness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus sets it apart from others. So if there are parallels, it doesn't make them the same or equal. I mean, many of us like conspiracy theories. If we're really honest, if you don't believe me, get online for like 10 minutes and you'll see conspiracy theories about everything. They're everywhere. In fact, just this week, NBA player Kyrie Irving apologized because a couple years ago he was infatuated with conspiracy theories and he was all in on the earth is flat theory and he posted that and said that and a bunch of young people argued with their history teachers because Kyrie Irving said so. So he apologized, not recognizing his own influence. Like, I'm kind of enamored with conspiracy theory. Sorry, guys. But see, sometimes we try to make connections that are not there, or they're just such coincidence. In fact, I love this list. I want to read to you. Um, Christianity does not claim to be the first religion to speak. Um, so here, sorry. So what does a Christian say about parallels that predate, predate Christ? First, we need to be careful to avoid what Craig Evans calls parallelomania. This is where authors perceive similarities between events or people and then construct parallels without any attention to cultural context or historical awareness. I once heard someone talk about the similarities between the lives and deaths of Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy. He pointed out that, this is a fascinating list by the way, both men were concerned with civil rights, both were elected to Congress in 46, 1846, and 1946. Lincoln was elected president in 1860, Kennedy in 1960. Both were slain on a Friday before a major holiday. Both were shot in the presence of their wives and another couple. 
Of the other couple, the man was wounded, but neither wife was. Both were shot from behind in the head. Lincoln was shot in the Ford's Theater in Box 7. Kennedy was shot in Car 7 of the Dallas Motorcade. Both were pronounced dead at a location with the initials PH, Peterson House, and Parkland Hospital. The successors of both men were named Johnson. Andrew Johnson was born in 1808, Lyndon B. Johnson in 1908. Both assassins were privates in the military. John Wilkes Booth was born in 1839. Lee Harvey Oswald was born in 1939. Booth fled from a theater to a library while Oswald fled from a library to a theater. Both assassins were taken into custody by a police officer named Baker. Lincoln was shot in Ford's theater. Kennedy was shot in a Ford car. The model of the Ford was a Lincoln. It doesn't mean it's the same event, right? We all get that. A hundred years apart, it's not the same event. But if we want to, we could sit there and go, ooh. I mean, someone, they figured all that out. Like, do you realize how impossible that is? Like to go, I'm going to kill President Kennedy because if I can make all this stuff work out. I mean, there's no way. You notice how you look back, you can see stuff that isn't really there? We all do it. We do it all the time. We go, well, this happened and that happened. And I think, and we begin to put stuff together and, and it doesn't help anything. So the question is this, do the stories, these stories, have anything to do with helping us to know Jesus? I think the words of Augustine of Hippo might be helpful to us as he wrote to another guy named Celsus. This very thing which is now called the Christian religion existed before. It was not absent from the beginning of the human race until Christ himself came in the flesh, but it was then the true religion that already existed began to be called Christian. That's really good, by the way. What Augustine is trying to say is God has always been at work in the world. In fact, this is what we call the idea of the provenient grace of God, that God's grace comes before us in such a way that we can know him and it's maybe this idea that, that what Augustine wants us to see and know here is this, that God has always been at work using every story that exists to help continually point us to him, to point us to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, this is what Paul says in Colossians two sixteen and 17, and this passage I think is important for us. He says this, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. A shadow of things to come. Have you noticed how sometimes when you read or hear a story, something inside you longs for more? Have you had this sense there has to be more to life than this? Have you been to that party or that celebration and thought there's a goodness to this that has to be kind of unique, that there's something that in this that feels so right? And sometimes as Paul writes, there's a festival or celebration that points us to something greater. Because even in the middle of life's greatest celebrations, we kind of can't help but think there must be more. Is this all that there is? The myths, symbols, stories, and legends open our mind to the most incredible story of all. The story of a God who lovingly and longingly pursues us.
It's the story of Jesus. It's a story of how far love will go to show us what love looks like. And the answer is that even death itself can stop the love of God. The reality is us, for us is that that may seem like myth and legend. In fact, that's what C.S. Lewis thought. C.S. Lewis, many of you know, is a great writer of Christian apologetics, but he wasn't always that. In fact, he was a pretty devout atheist. And he and J.R.R. Tolkien were friends, and they both taught at Oxford. And I mean, I think it's fascinating. Those are like two of the most incredible writers of the 20th century, just hanging out, hanging out, having conversation. I just wish I could have been at the table next to them. I mean, I, I, it's kind of impressive. You think of all the Chronicles of Narnia and, and the Lord of the Rings and all this conversation was happening around these tables, these two great writers. And, and C.S. Lewis, one of Lewis's greatest resistance was that he saw people who claimed to be followers of Jesus more shaped by stories of fiction than the God they claimed to follow. I'll, I'll give that to us in kind of 21st century language. They're more shaped by, watch they, by what they watched on Netflix or what they watched on television or what they read online than they were the person of Jesus. And C.S. Lewis saw that and said, why would I be a part of a religion that you can say you're part of this and you can live in ways look nothing like the person you say you follow? Lewis was afraid that he would lose the joy in life, that he would lose some of these other things, that he'd have less meaning. But what Tolkien tried to convince him of was this and eventually did was that you'll find more joy, not less. You'll find more beauty, not less. You'll find that romanticism exists in ways you never understood. You'll find that you can be more true to these things, these stories that you love. In fact, you'll find that kind of the culmination of Christianity is all the legends and myths and stories you love. The romantic world that you like and the realistic world in which you live, you see they're joined together in Jesus in this idea that God is redeeming and restoring and making all things new. What Tolkien helped Lewis begin to see was that what if the true safe harbor of life is Jesus himself? So Lewis concluded that at their best, the Christ-shaped stories of the pagan world were real, though unfocused gleam of divine truth falling on human imagination. And so he wrote this. The old myth of the dying God comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date, in a particular place, from Osiris dying, nobody knows when or where, to a historical person crucified. It's all in order under Pontius Pilate, it says. Christ is more than Osiris, not less. We must not be ashamed of the parallels. They ought to be there. It'd be a stumbling block if they weren't. Those who do not know that this great myth became fact when the virgin conceived are indeed to be pitied. C.S. Lewis. We sometimes get in trouble when we try to force parallels that aren't there. But we also get in trouble when we try to deny their existence. That's just as dangerous as forcing something that isn't true. Like these words, myths have their place in human history as expressions of deep yearning in our consciousness, a universal witness to the hunger and hope that God would come into intimate contact with humankind, repair the damages made by our sinfulness, and grant safety that would last forever. In the gospel, we see that this is exactly what God has done. In other words, we told ourselves these stories until they became true. Because what God saw in the brokenness of humanity 
was a people desperately in need of rescuing. And if we're honest, in those dark nights of our own souls, those quiet moments, we wrestle with, is there more? We wonder if this story can really be real. We wonder if this story can really bring our hearts hope and salvation. We really wonder if at the end of the day, is this really a myth that existed? I mean, I know we've said maybe the Bible is true and, and Jesus is obviously a historical figure because enough historians have said he's real. But is it just a myth of a story that this guy came and died and rose again and brings new life? Or is this story really life-changing? See, part of the realness of Jesus is this. Then in those dark nights of our soul, in those moments when we wonder and we question and we wrestle with something internally and there's something in us that we just can't solve and we don't know what to do with, we find that there is something tangible that happens when we're together. Something real. I was just talking this week with someone who, who unapologetically says, I don't really know that I believe in God. And I said, well, I, I understand. I, I get it. It's kind of this leap of faith we all take. We leap one way or the other, whether we believe or we don't believe. And I said, but here's my question. I don't know what to do with the people I have met whose lives have been radically transformed. I don't know what to do with their life story. At some level, yeah, I can say that we never know the extent of what humanity can do. Like, we're pretty impressive people, right? I mean, we can do incredible things on our own, but I have watched life transformation of people in such ways that I don't know how to categorically describe it because I can't imagine a myth, a legend would lead me to that kind of life change. But what if, what if one of the real ways in which we begin to recognize the kind of tangible aspect of this faith is by eating together? Because one of the interesting things about Christianity is it calls us particular practices, particular activities, particular ways of life, not so that we have these weird things that we do, although some of them are kind of weird if we're honest. But we gather around a table, and we don't really gather significantly, it's more symbolically, because to literally gather on a table would be a really big table today. But we believe that somehow God in his love for us invites us to a unique table in which he says, hey, here's, here's for you to know I was real. That I lived and I died and I rose again and I want you to know my love in such a way that it changed you that in the dark night of your soul you find hope and freedom and love and joy and peace and it transforms the very essence of your being. And so I want you to come to this table and every time you eat of it, every time you gather together and you say, do this in remembrance of me, it's a reminder of Christ's life his love, his death, and his resurrection that brings us hope and new life. And so though there may be myths out there, and some of them are fun to read, and my son loves the Halloween ones, Jesus is, we don't believe a myth. We believe he offers hope and life today. And so there's just a moment we're going to take communion together. And if you've never taken this, we invite you to feel free to, to participate with us today if you want. We take a piece of bread and we dip it in a cup and someone will say to you, this is the broken body of Jesus and this is the blood poured out for you. This is for the forgiveness of sins. This is Christ's body and Christ's blood. Not in some kind of morbid, like cannibalistic way, but a way for us to say the grace of God says, you wonder how far I'll go for you. It's to the ends of the earth and even then it will not stop. My love for you knows no ends. Death itself knows no end to my love. And so this morning, we invite anybody who wants to say, I, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my life to him. I want to follow him with my life. We invite you to, to take communion today. 
a symbolic of not a myth of Jesus, not a legend that we tell our kids, but of a life-changing story of a, of a God who loves us enough to come as one of us. So this morning we take communion as a recognition of God's love for us. And maybe for some of us today, we need to recognize that there's this kind of innate thing in us that, that wrestles with this and, and wonders about its truth and wonders if it's not myth. And so we're going to even sing, as we take communion, we'll sing it as well as a reminder that, that it is God with us. So this morning, I'd invite you to, I'd invite you to stand where you are right now. I'm going to pray. And as we, as we pray and as you take communion and as we sing, maybe we recognize that it is God who comes to us. Father, we thank you for these elements that we're about to participate in taking together. We thank you for the way in which you love us and you invite us to come to your table, for the way in which you are near to us in all kinds of ways. Father, we thank you that somehow through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you're making all things new. So Father, will you help us this morning as we prepare to take these elements together? May they be your grace and your love for us that we receive, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as we prepare to take these elements, I want to just mention a couple of things. Um,